morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 17th, we're studying Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50. Although Jesus has taught his disciples very clearly by his first prediction of his passion, his disciples show their confusion over that matter as Jesus descends from the mountain of his transfiguration. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Arthur Just. Dr. Just serves as professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he is also the acting dean of the chapel. He also serves the Office of International Mission for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in Theological Education, and he is the author of the two-volume commentary on the gospel according to St. Luke in the Concordia Commentary Series from CPH. Dr. Just, welcome to Sharper Iron. Wonderful to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started, Dr. Just, let's talk a little bit about the context. This is a pretty important, pivotal text in St. Luke's Gospel. He's given us some mountaintop experiences recently, very literally in the transfiguration of our Lord, and the, the confession of St. Peter was a highlight, kind of been building to this moment. What should we know about Luke, his Gospel, leading up to this text that'll help us understand it more? Well, I, you know, I never realized what a pivotal text this is. You know, it occurs right at the end of the Galilean ministry and right before Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem. And as you said, it is what happens the moment Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, when I teach uh, Luke's gospel, one of the sections I have is Luke 9, 1 to 36, which I think is just a magnificent kind of symphony of text that are very carefully placed together. And if you compare it to the other gospels, um, Lucas has kind of pushed a bunch of texts together that are not the same order in the other Gospels. And there, there are really a number of major issues, a number of major events that happen in the first 36 verses of, of chapter 9, the sending of the 12, which is huge, you know, and they're, they're sent to cast out demons, which we're going to see it very important here at the, at the end of chapter 9. And I think there's a nice, you know, kind of, echo here to that sending out the the 12 to cast out demons because here they can't do it so it's kind of interesting i mean we we probably want to think about that a little bit but the identity of jesus is one of the major points and it's herod who brings that up curiously you know he's he's asking what's the oral tradition about this and they said yet yeah, you know john the baptist is risen a prophet from old has come up elijah you know, it's it's it, it, all prophetic categories. And then that prompts Jesus to ask the disciples, okay, you know, this is what I'm hearing. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, of course, says you're the Christ of God. And in Luke's gospel, it's the first time a human being has called him the Christ. The, the demons know that he's the Christ. But this is the first time a human being, and of course, it's one of the 12, and it's Peter. But you also have not just the identity of Jesus, but that identity follows the feeding of the 5,000, you know, and that's on all four gospels, such an important miracle. But here, this is one of the places where it 
Luke crunches two things together. He puts the feeding of the 5,000 and then the confession of Peter. Because I think when Peter sees that feeding and he goes, wow, this is the new Moses. This is the Christ of God. I think that's what prompts his, his great confession. And then, of course, Jesus has the first passion prediction. And it's very, very probably difficult for them. He also, of course, predicts his resurrection. But it's a very, I mean, that's that's a solemn moment. And he tells them, don't tell anyone about me being the Christ and that I must suffer. In the passage we're looking at today, we have the second passion prediction, very different from the first one, but different in a way that I think really accents the themes that we have before us today. And then, of course, there's the, the transfiguration, the glory. And I think the other theme here in Luke, 9, 1 to 36, is that suffering precedes glory. And Jesus will really kind of kind of emphasize this after his resurrection to the Emmaus disciples. When he finally teaches them about himself, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ suffer and then enter into his glory? The beautiful little, almost poetic statement about his suffering and his entering into glory. That's the resurrection. And that's, that's, a, that's what the order of the kingdom is about. And that's what Luke is teaching us here, that suffering comes before glory. So this little interlude between the transfiguration and Jesus turning his face to go to Jerusalem, 951, which is, I always tell students, underline this in your Bibles. Because this is where all of a sudden, after two and a half years in Galilee, teaching and performing miracles, he now turns his face to go to Jerusalem. And it's about a four, five, maybe six month. We think it takes place in the fall of 29, and he's, um, you know, crucified in April of 30. So it's it, depending on your the way you count months. It's about five months. It's a long period for him to take a three-day journey to Jerusalem. But it's a turning point. Everything changes after this. So you're right. This is a. I I, I didn't realize what an important little interlude this is, at the very end of chapter nine. What, what's going on with the disciples at this time? Because uh, you mentioned the confession of Peter, and, and he's the first one to confess as a human being, you're the Christ of God. But then up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was that misstep about building the booths. And now we're starting to see even more confusion, not just from Peter, from the disciples. What What's going on? Why are they having such misunderstandings all of a sudden, it seems? Well, I'm glad you brought up the Transfiguration because that, you know, I, that's a Students always puzzle about that because I always say, you know, Peter had it right. I mean, he's on the mountain, he's in heaven, kind of. Jesus is there, Moses and Elijah's there. You know, it was an incredible moment. Let's preserve it. Let's build booths. Let's stay here. You know, stay on the mountain. Why go down? Uh, I love what Luke says there. I don't know if you remember that. It, 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 he's, he, this is Luke's language. He knows not what he says. <laughs> you know, he just. You know, I mean, it, there you can see he misunderstands. See, he doesn't get the order of the kingdom. He doesn't get it. And you can see that, you know, through the whole gospel, I mean, the disciples are kind of clueless. Um, they, 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 they really have a difficult time grasping the fullness of what Jesus is about. And, and it's a Lucan theme. There, there's God's in control of letting us fully understand by faith who Jesus is. It has to be God's action. And the last chapter, you know, Luke 24, I wrote my thesis on Emmaus story. 
it's the it's the climactic moment. He he teaches us exactly how it does happen for us. But I mean, they 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 sink into a deeper and deeper darkness here. I mean, they can't cast out demons. He describes it as an unbelieving generation. They want to rebuke people who are casting out demons who aren't part of their, you know, disciples group. And and they drew it into the name of Jesus. And Jesus sort of rebukes them and says, hey, you know, if if they're with you, they're with you, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. And that's a foretaste of Acts. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, the, the miscomprehension of the disciples, there is going to be a similar sort of experience uh, at the beginning of the Passion in Luke 22, where they sink into deeper and deeper darkness. And there's a parallel there, because here we have in this little section, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Same thing happens right after the, the words of institution. And, and just think about Luke's you know, timing here. Right after the transfiguration, this great burst of glory, they're sitting around wondering who's the greatest. Right after Jesus at his Passover blows them away by saying, this is this this bread is my body, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. They start arguing about who's the greatest. So it, it's a major theme. And, and it, it, in some ways, it is the theme of this last section of chapter 9. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at this text from chapter 9. Again, we're picking up at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. We'll pause there. That's through the middle of verse 43. Dr. Just, as this text gets started, again, it's right after the transfiguration. The next day, St. Luke says, they come down the mountain, Jesus and Peter, James and John, and there's this great crowd. Here's the man, the father, his only son. So it's a pretty uh, emotional scene in some in some senses. He's upset because of his son. The disciples haven't been able to do it. Jesus exclaims, he helps. Take us into this scene. Yeah, you know, it, it is. It's it, it, it happens right. They're come, it says they come down from the hills. And, um, you know, one of the great themes of Galilee is that he's got all these crowds around him. And I think it's because he's a healer, you know? And um, one of the things I think people don't realize is that the core value of the first century, the thing that defined them was holiness. I mean, it, it, it was the part of the purity code, who's clean, who's unclean, who's holy, who's not holy. And, you know, there were so many people who were considered to be outcasts, unholy. You know, but somebody once predicted it was over 50%, 60% is what they said. Um, and so, you know, when, when Jesus heals people or casts out demons, he not only makes them feel better, but he restores them back to their life. They can now, you know, go to synagogue, go to temple. They can, you know, be with their families. They can have a social life. I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. And the core value of holiness is 
certainly for the Jews to find by the temple, the Holy of Holies, you know, and, and proximity to that. But now Jesus is this new incandescent breaking in of God's holiness. And, and you can see that a man from the crowd, you know, and, and I, I love the Greek language here and behold, you know, and, and then, and in the next verse, it's very rare, but it's kind of like, pay attention. This is very important. You know, and behold, a man from the crowd cries out. I mean, he, Jesus left them to go up on the mountain and now he's down again and they want, they, they want him to, to do what Jesus does. And, uh, he's begging him and it's his only begotten, you know, the translation is interesting there. It is his only child, but it's his only begotten that's used, uh, of the, the widow's son at name, you know, and you can kind of see a parallel there, especially as the, the widow's son at name after the raising of, of her son. Jesus gives him back to her. And here, after the healing of the child, Jesus gives him back to his father, showing the compassion of Jesus. But you know what else is interesting, Pastor Apple, is that the whole Galilean ministry starts after the sermon in Nazareth, in Capernaum, in the synagogue, with a man with an unclean demon spirit. There you get that notion that the demons are unclean. And... Um, He's afraid of Jesus, you know, the unholiness in the presence of holiness. And he, he says, what to you and to us, Jesus, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, and here now at the very end of the galleon, it's a nice kind of what, what I call a frame, a, a sandwich, you know, uh, a bookend, started end. So you start with a, a, a demon being cast out of a man with an unclean spirit, and here you end with it. And it's violent in both cases. The spirit seizes him, cries out, convulses him. He foams at the mouth. It, it's as if he's going to be crushed. That's the word, pulverized. You know, and and why why is this happening? Because the disciples they can't do it. They're not able to. And um, and they were just sent out at the beginning of this chapter to cast out demons, power over the demons, to 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 preach the kingdom and heal. You know, to do what Jesus did. So it's a really, I mean, it's, it, it, this is a great section. It really, in a way, is kind of a pivot between the Galilean ministry and, and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. When Jesus says in verse 41, oh, faithless and twisted generation, is he, who's he talking about? Is he talking about his disciples, the crowds? What, who's he talking well, about? Well, you know, I, I, I wondered that myself when I looked at this uh, to prepare for this. And I, I looked at what I said in the commentary, and I think he's talking He's including the disciples here. And that's a really harsh thing to say. The generation is usually a technical term for the religious establishment. You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those people who are in holy positions, you know, and, and reject him. But now the disciples are sinking into that category. You know, they're, 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 they're not understanding. And, you know, as I said, this is sort of a theme throughout. It's, it's not going to really be something that uh, is resolved until after the resurrection. I think that's kind of the point. It's not resolved until Jesus teaches them on the road. This is the Emmaus disciples and, you know, opens their eyes in the breaking of the bread. It's really not fully resolved, even until after the ascension at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes and Peter finally seems to fully grasp all that this is about. And, um, and, and you know, I... If, when we look at the passion prediction, we'll see that, that God, in a way, is keeping them from knowing 
and they're just sinking into deeper and deeper misunderstanding. And it, you know, I, I always tell students, give these guys a pass. You know, they, they, they didn't have, you know, the vision that you have from hindsight, knowing the end of the story. They, they didn't know what was going to happen, you know, and they, they know that there's something special here. They know that, that he is like the Messiah, the Christ. They know that he, nobody can do what he does. That, yeah, maybe he is the son of God. But they've never seen anything like this before. And he, he appears very normal, humble. Um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do things that are that extraordinary. That he doesn't levitate or fly in the air. I mean, he's not, you know, like a superhero. He's, he's a man. Teaches like no one else. Performs miracles. But there are others who do. But, you know, they, they are, they are clouded by the, the darkness of his, of his prediction that he's going to suffer and die. And even though they know and hear about the resurrection, even though they see the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was too much for them. And I think one of the points that, that Luke is making, that I think is one of the points that Jesus is making, is that. God is the one who opens eyes. God is the one who gives us the faith. And it's not going to happen until the whole story is told. It's not going to happen until Jesus rises from the dead. Right. And, and, then, and in that way, then, this text is, is pivotal, pointing us forward to the way that that's going to happen, as you were saying, in what happens with Emmaus and then all the way into the book of Acts. It, in verse 42, as St. Luke describes what Jesus does, he says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. He connects the rebuking of the spirit to the healing as well. How do those two things go hand in hand? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I kind of puzzled about that in the sense that um, the rebuke language was used at the beginning of the Galilean ministry. He rebukes the unclean spirit. And he also, interestingly, in the very next pericope, the next passage, and he goes from the synagogue, you know, maybe... 50 yards to his, the place where Peter lives and his mother-in-law is there and she's sick and he rebukes the fever. And that is a really telling statement that for Jesus, demons and fever, sickness are, are essentially the same thing. And so sin, you know, they're all results of the virus of sin and he treats them all the same because they've, they've put people in bondage, you know. They, these people are are slaves to these things, and he frees them. That's in many ways that is the essence of what Jesus does during his ministry. Is he sets people free? He releases them. That word is used again and again. It's in the Sermon of Nazareth. It's the word we use for forgiveness, to be freed, released, you know, to let go. Um, and and I think here you see that rebuking the the, the demon is is like casting him out. And that is a healing because it's physical. It's not just spiritual, it's physical too. Notice his body is being crushed, he's convulsed, he's foaming at the mouth. Body and soul, it's the whole person. And Jesus is concerned with the whole person. It's like, you know, the Luke 5, the paralytic let down from the roof, you know? I mean, the, the question there is about forgiveness of sins, you know, in order that you might know that the Son of Man on earth has power to forgive sins, he says to him, you know, not, you know, your sins are forgiven. He says, take up your bed and walk, you know. The healing is in a way a sign of the 
the power for forgiveness. And, you know, these things are all kind of one and the same thing. And of course, the, the greatest bondage is death. And there are two great resurrections. So healing and casting out demons, for Jesus, it's the same thing. And it's it's an act of mercy because he gives them back to his father. And and think, think of how I'm always looking for, as I talk about for bookends, frames, he starts with a man crying out, I beg you for my son, my only begotten. And then what does Jesus do? Heals his son, gives it back to him. Yeah, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's just the 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 humanity of it, the again, an emotional scene. It's it's very beautiful, the compassion and mercy of Jesus on display. The the people see it and the way that ESV translates it, all were astonished at the majesty of God. That that's a I don't I don't think we've heard that quite put that way before. Only, what is that only the majesty place in the of New God? Testament. That words you. So what? What's what are they? What are they astonished at? Well, what does I that mean, mean that they're, they're astonished? They're, they're that? Ast- I think they're astounded that G- G- Jesus is going up against the devil, and he's winning. He's winning, and he's he's. I, I think they're astounded that remember that the twelve were sent out, and people knew that cast to cast out demons, that power of the demons, you know, to heal, and uh, that you know. There may have been uh, kind of traditions already developing about the power of these 12. But then at 40, they can't do it. You know, they can't do it. it, it it's a great statement. They were not able, you know. And, and and the father is kind of annoyed. I begged your disciples in order that they might cast him out. They were unable. But Jesus is able, you know, and he does it. And he does it with compassion. And you know, you, you, you really wonder if Luke is putting that word majesty there. That's Luke, of course, is writing that. They're astounded at the miracle and, and everything that is able to do, but the majesty that 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 there was already a you know, a sense that something happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. The majesty of God. That you know, it's it's a word that we would associate more with sort of the glory of God. But that it, in a way, the nobility of God, you know, and, and my good colleague, Dr. Peter Scare wrote his thesis on the Jesus, you know, in his passion on the noble death. And I think Jesus does come across in Luke as being sort of a, a noble figure and, and Gentiles would resonate because it was really hard for them to wrap their mind around the idea of a savior being crucified with this humiliating, shameful death of the criminal. But if he doesn't know, and if he goes to his death like a general would into a battle that he knew he was going to be killed, you know, it's a little different. And and I think here the majesty of God that that he he he, he helps people and he does it in a way that is is honorable. He, he and this this goes back to the purity code because the purity code was also about honor and shame. And all through his ministry, Pharisees are trying to shame him. They're trying to you know, they're trying to trap him and that kind of thing. And Jesus always turns the table on him. And he's, 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 he's always in a way gracious, you know, I mean, he, he can, he can stick it to people, uh, and then just read chapter 11 coming up, but man, he, he, um, he has a, a way of entering a situation, taking it over and making all things new. And that's exactly what his death does. I mean, that this is all a foretaste of the new creation that he brings in with his death. Hmm. 
So we've got this, this wonderful scene where Jesus heals the man by rebuking the demon. He gives him back to his father. Everyone is astonished at the majesty of God. And, and almost, I mean, I wonder, it's almost like a, a parallel to the, to the transfiguration that here's the majesty, here's the glory, but now we're coming down the mountain and Jesus is going to remind his disciples of, of what is coming. And he's going to, to tell about his passion again. So I think what I'm going to do here, Dr. Jess, I'm going to read the rest of the text and then we do need to take a break. So let's, let's read the text. We'll take the break and we'll come back and, and talk about it. So we're picking up in Luke 9 in the middle of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 9 all the way to verse 50. And we do need to take a break, but we're going to be right back. We're looking at Luke chapter 9 with Dr. Arthur Just today here on Sharper Iron. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 17th. We are studying Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50 with Dr. Arthur Just. He is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he serves as acting dean of the chapel. He also serves with the Office of International Mission in Theological Education. Dr. Just, uh, prior to the break, we were looking at the account where Jesus heals the boy with the demon. And you mentioned something to me during the break about the word majesty that it occurs only here in the Gospels, but it does occur elsewhere in the, the New Testament. Where is that and what does that bring to bear on our conversation? Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, you know, um, it's kind of a Lucan word. It's used three times. It's used here in Acts 19, referring to the magnificence of the great goddess Artemis. Isn't that interesting? Great is Artemis, yeah. Ephesians, her magnificence. And then in Second Peter 1 of the majesty of Jesus. And really what it what it denotes and i and i think this is important here because i think it because we're going to go right into a fashion state so think of everybody saying the majesty the grandeur the sublimity you know 
of a divinity. That's what it's only, it's only used in connection with the divinity or divine attribute. So I think they're beginning to think maybe this is the son of God. And then boom, you go into this, this next periphery, which is, which is this, you know, plunge into the, into the suffering of Jesus. So with, with then Jesus' second prediction of his passion, everybody's marveling. And Jesus says to his disciples, and this is, when you compare it to the first one, it's it's much shorter. Uh, there's a couple of features that I'm sure you can bring out more than that. But what stands out to me is the way that Jesus speaks. You know, let these words sink into your ears. And then all he says here is that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. What What's happening here now the second time Jesus predicts his passion? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite of the passion predictions because it is so short and it's the reaction of the disciples that Luke, you know, records that I think is most remarkable, but start with that marveling, you know, that marveling is a really important word and, um, <clears throat> people marvel at miracles and the, the word in Greek and, and we, we transliterate it into English is, is, um, Thaumazonton, which we translate thaumaturgical. And if you read New Testament stuff, it'll talk about the thaumaturgical ministry of Jesus. And they're talking about the miracle working ministry of Jesus. And that's, that, that's how we have introduced to us this statement. And, and he says to his disciples, and again, it's disciples. And we're, it's, you know, that, that word can be ambiguous and it doesn't necessarily mean the 12. Because the 70 are disciples. But here's how I translate it, Pastor Apple. I think you'll, you put these words into your ears. Or like I say in class, I, they, I, they wouldn't let me put this in the translation. You stick this in your ear, you know, mm, put yeah. it in there, you know. And he, he, it's, it's like, pay attention to this, everybody. This is really important. And he uses the same title he uses in the first passion prediction, but there's no detail. It's not about his, his being delivered. It's not about, excuse me, him being rejected by the uh, Sanhedrin, which in the first one says the three parts of it, you know, the chief priests, the scribes, and the, um, the, the leaders of the people. Doesn't talk about him being killed, doesn't talk about his resurrection, but it does use the word son of man which is, I think, a title for Jesus in his humility and in his suffering. It's used in the Passion Predictions. But Luke uses this technical word. It's such an important word. In Greek, it's paradidomi, which means to hand over, deliver, betray. On the night in which he was betrayed, that's the word. And, and it becomes, in Luke and the other Gospels, but Luke really does, I think, use it more. It's, it's a technical word for the Passion, and that includes suffering and death. So he, it's it's about what's going to happen on that Good Friday, and I don't know if you covered this yet, Master Apple, but in Luke, Good Friday starts with the Last Supper. It's after sundown, so we're in Friday. The Good Friday starts with the Last Supper, and of course, the three days end with the Mass. That's intentional. Last Supper begins, Mass ends, and that whole day of Good Friday, you know, starting after sundown on our Thursday. That's when their Friday began. That whole day, until he is put into the tomb at the end of that day, is his being delivered into the hands of men. And 
th- there is no resurrection. And that's unusual. You know, the next one in chapter 18, or the next one that most people say, there is a brief one in 1725. The next one in 18, it really detailed. I mean, it's it's got all kinds of details, and including the resurrection. But here, just delivered into the hands of men. Later on in, in chapter 24, when they look back on the passion, it's, it's into the hands of evil. And in 18, it's into the hands of Gentiles. This is just bad. And I, I, I mean, it's it's just stark in its in its simplicity. Is you know I'm, the fact that he leaves out the resurrection here, combined with what you were saying about the word majesty in the previous verse, is it? I mean, it's almost like they they see this majesty, they're recognizing who he is, and he's almost I don't know doubling down on the fact that okay, yes, it's true, I am the Christ, I'm the Son of God, but you you don't get that unless without the suffering. And it's like he, he wants to emphasize that here by just very succinctly saying the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, period, as a reminder that all of this glory, this majesty is only going to come with suffering first, and then the glory comes after. Exactly. You, you've got to wrap your minds around that, and you've got to embrace that. And the fact of the matter is, and I think this is one of the things, you can't understand that you can't do that unless God gives you the faith to do it. That God opens up your eyes by first preparing you through his teaching, you know, teaching on the road, breaking of bread. And I, and I, I mean, I, for years and years equated that with word and sacrament, you know, and that's, that's what Jesus does. I mean, he teaches and then he, he performs miracles and the, I call the miracles, you know, of today are the sacraments because they testify to the presence of the creator and his creation, making all things new. That's what Jesus miracles did. And that's what the sacraments do now. So teaching and miracles, word and sacrament, that's how Jesus comes to us now. And, and, and you have to hear his word, believe it, and then have your eyes open to the breaking of bread. Well, with the disciples then, talk more about what, what happens with them in verse 45. They don't understand. And in fact, it says it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they're, they're even afraid to ask Jesus. Uh, what, what's going on in that verse with the disciples? Yeah, I mean, it's, this is the first time the, the, the fact that the passion prediction is something that is, and, and it's, you said it, they not, not only don't understand it, it was hidden from them. And that's a theological passage. So you could pass You could translate that it was hidden from them by God. God hid it from them so that they may not comprehend it. You know, he, he, I think he, he knows that it's not going to be until the resurrection that they're going to be able to fully understand the extent of the suffering. And it, I, you know, we just don't, I think fully grasp how horrific crucifixion was for them and how somebody who they loved so much and who they had come to two and a half years, they were with him, listening to him, following him, watching him teach, seeing his compassion, seeing his miracles. And then to, to, to think about him, you know, suffering and dying. This is really interesting, Pastor Al, but in, in the passion predictions, Luke never says he's going to be crucified. Never. Just kill, which is bad. The crucifixion is 
The only time crucifixion language is used before the actual crucifixion of Jesus in Luke is when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him. He says it twice. He says it in, um, in uh, Luke 14. And the first time he says it is in Luke 9, chapter that we're in, you know. And that, that, that is always interesting because, you know, and, and in Luke it says, take up your cross daily, which is kind of absurd. You know, how do you do that daily? Take it up once and that's it, man, you're, you're done. But after he rises from the dead in a passion statement by the angels, it says crucifixion. Um, and, and that they were afraid to ask him concerning this word. They're afraid to ask about, they, they don't want to know, you know, you know, they don't want to know. They, they, they don't want to know the details. They, they, it's too much for them. And I mean, what I love about it is it's so human. We're just like that, you know? I mean, I walk in the door and my wife says, I got some bad news for you. And I want to say, I don't want to know. I just got to give me, give me a minute, you know, to take my coat off, you know? I, I, it's, it, they were afraid. They're afraid. Okay, tell me the detail. I, no, I don't want to know. I'm afraid to know. And this doom of death, this doom of suffering, this passion of being delivered over, it's, it's overwhelming for them. I really think that that does go to emphasize the the offensiveness of the cross to and and just the idea of suffering and death for this one that they've now named as Christ, and and it reminds me. I mean, when I was thinking about this passage, my mind went back to Luke chapter eight, right after Jesus tells the parable of the sower, because there his disciples do come to him and they say, "Hey, tell us more about this." They ask him, and then Jesus, you know, quotes there from Isaiah six oh, yeah. about the purpose of of parables and how they also reveal and hide and there the disciples are in the group that have things revealed to him or to them but here they're in the group now things are being hidden and yeah i really think it, it the difference it seems is what jesus has been saying about his his upcoming death they just they can't handle that and they don't want to know it's it's just too much you yeah, know that's a great comparison pastor uh, you know and, and a, a similar thing happens at the end of acts you know where at the very end there you know you know, the quote from Isaiah, uh, it's a, it's a remarkable moment about the fact that, you know, Paul's not washing his hands of the gen, uh, the Jewish mission, but we're going to move to Gentiles because they will listen, you know, ears that don't hear eyes that don't see, you know, it's, it, it is an amazing thing that the idea that, that, uh, God is really in control of everything. You know, I always tell students that remember. He's in charge of the atonement, the resurrection, and your capacity to believe and understand it. So at this moment, the disciples are, I mean, as I think you've described it, going deeper into the darkness of misunderstanding. They won't ask anything about this to Jesus. And so I, I suppose it's not too surprising with them in that state that the next thing they're doing is arguing about who was the greatest. I mean, here's Jesus saying, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they're arguing who's the greatest. Can, can you take us into some of that juxtaposition yeah. and then how Jesus responds to them? Well, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard one. I mean, you just wonder what are they thinking? What are they thinking? And I love, I translate it and a thought entered their minds. You know, I have a four-year-old grandson and I can see a thought enter his mind. I mean, <laughs> I, I can just, I mean, it, it's great because it's, he's so expressive 
and, and you know, he's walking around, and all of a sudden, I see he has an idea, and, 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 you know, and and it, it here's it's it's it, it's like, the, and, and you know, I I do think that this notion about who's the greatest among them is because of their failure to cast out demons, because I think you know they were sent out with this incredible thing to do, you know, and 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 I think people don't realize that. They were just imitating Jesus. They did what Jesus did. They they preach the kingdom and they heal. Those those are the things they do. And they cast. They were power over the the, the demons, you know. And remember when he sends out the seventy. It's the next chapter, you know. The, the de- even the demons said, you know, um, submitted to us, you know, when we've spoken your name. And I and I think that this is their, you know, okay, who still has the gift? Who can? Uh, so some of you were not able to, but who can? Who's the greatest here? You know, and and and, and you can see that it, it's it, they're they're sort of operating in a theology of glory. It's the same thing, you know, with the seventy. You know, do not rejoice that you have power over the snakes and the scorpions, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of of heaven. And here, you know, don't get puffed up when you get this thought in your heart about being greatest, because really, really really you've got to receive all of this like a child you know and and who receives a child in my name receives me and he who receives me receives one who sent me but later on in luke 10 18 he'll talk about this in terms of himself you know being rejected and, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me um this language of receiving by the way is the language of hospitality you know and that's one of the great great, great themes of the Old Testament. And it's a great theme of, of I, I think, Luke's gospel and Jesus. Jesus shows hospitality to the world by his incarnation. And he and he takes it to the point of sitting at table with people and having table fellowship with them. It's incredible what he does. And, and I think one of the themes, you know, he's an alien in Emmaus. You know, who is this alien who does not know the things that have happened in Jerusalem? He is an alien comes from another country, breaks in from heaven. It's an invasion. You know, and when he invades, everything changes. Babies leap in the womb like John the Baptist, you know. Jesus is a nothing and the babes leaping. People are healed. Demons are cast out. The dead are raised. Everything changes. So how are you going to receive this guy? That's the question. Well, we know what they do. They kill him. They crucify him, you know. And and it's just, it's just too much to bear. And here, you know, why are they an unbelieving and perverted generation? Because they're they're not, you know, receiving child in his name. They, they don't understand the humility of the kingdom, you know, that you have to take it like a child. And there must be some context here, you know, and later on, I think you'll see it in, in, the, in the gospel where, you know, he talks about suffer the little children to come to me. But he takes a child here and says, you know, you got to receive, you know, the worst of the worst, this humblest of the humble in my name. And notice the language of in my name. That's a huge Lucan theme. It's a huge thing in the Bible. But Luke and Acts, you know, baptized in the name of Jesus, in his name, where his name is, is his presence. And that's really what this is about. The disciples were to go out with his presence. And I'm not sure they understand that. They, I'm not sure they understand fully. They, I think they're, they're like they're any human being. They're, they're, 
we're the greatest, but we're great only in connection with our humility. Can you talk a little bit more about the the child and the receiving of the child and just that that use of a if I, an object lesson that Jesus has? I mean, you you mentioned just a moment ago your your four year old grandson, and I mean the way that we think about children today may not be quite the same way that the disciples would have conceived when, when Jesus uses the child as an object lesson. How's how's that how's that hitting them here? Yeah, I mean, we all have a notion of of who's the greatest. And who, who would pick a child as the epitome of greatness, especially in this culture? You know, children were valued, but they were, you know, they, they weren't kind of, you know, elevated the way, especially now in our culture, they do. Uh, I mean, ch- children were very important, but Jesus takes it to a level that nobody else would have taken it. And um, ch- children, are people who admire those greater than themselves. But we would not pick a child as the epitome of, as I said, greatness. So for him to say that greatness in the kingdom is welcoming of a child in Jesus' name, they, they would have, that, that would have been hard for them, you know? And children represent complete helplessness. A perfect example of the least among all of them you know, in 947. Uh, and that, and that's what makes them great. Uh, according to human standards, they're not. But according to the standards of Jesus, you know, greatness for Jesus is the opposite of greatness for these still ignorant disciples and for the world. And I, I think it's a it, it it really encapsulates to a certain extent how clueless the disciples are, and he's he's pointing it out. Well, speaking of how clueless the disciples are, John in verse 49 seems to be right along with everybody else. He he starts talking now again about the casting out demons. I think you you mentioned earlier about maybe that's where this argument is coming from is their failure to cast out demons. And and John brings up someone else who's doing this, casting out demons in Jesus name and says, "Well, we tried to stop him because he's not with us." And then Jesus says something about that what's what's the relationship of verses 49 and 50? to this argument about the greatest. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I totally forgot it was John, you know, and I'm, I'm always an observer of the, the, the players in the gospel. I forgot this is where John appeared, and I think it's the evangelist, sons of Zebedee. And you know, there is uh, in other parts of the gospels where they want to sit on the right, sit on the left, and they are the, right. sons, of, the sons of thunder. I am particularly fond of James because I don't know, people might know, I, I worked in Spain for 25 years and uh, James is the patron saint of you know Spain he, he's supposedly buried in western Spain so the James and John and James is the first martyr of the 12 12 I mean excuse me Acts 12 which is a huge turning point in the book of Acts but anyway John it's interesting John the youngest you know I, I think he's they're they're confused you know, we couldn't do it. You sent us out to do it, and we did. And then when we tried here, we weren't able. And yet there are these other people who are not, and, and notice the languages are not following us. And that's the language of discipleship, who are not part of our discipleship group here. Okay? We tried to prevent them because they're not part of us, you know, and we don't know what you know what's going on, you know? And, and I think there's a certain, like, you know, we should be doing this. Why aren't we doing this? 
Why can't we do this? How, why can they do this? You know, and uh, and in a sense, they they kind of want it to themselves. You know, and and there is a sense we're the greatest, and there's no one else who can. You know, because we we weren't called by. I mean, they weren't called by you like we were. They weren't sent out like we were by you. And so, who are these guys? You know, so it is. It's interesting. And then Jesus. You know, do not try to prevent him for whoever is not against you is for you. You know, remember who your friends are. And and the reason I said this is a foretaste of Acts, because there is in Acts, you know, the sense of the, the Jerusalem 12, and then there are these renegades. Stephen is one of them. Philip is one of them. Paul, to a certain extent, you know, and everybody's going to wrap their minds around the fact that the gospel is being preached and miracles are being performed and the kingdom is being extended by somebody outside the 12. And I think it, one of the, the tensions in the early chapters of Acts is about this, especially with Philip and, and Stephen. They were probably the, the deacons who were, you know, in, in, in Acts 6. And it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. And I think you can see here that, that this really sets up Paul. I mean, Paul has a hard time establishing himself as an apostle. And it, you know, it takes an extraordinary moment in Acts 9. And I think you can see here, there's a, there's a bit of that here. Dr. Just, we have about four minutes left on the morning. There's, there's a lot here in this pivotal text, as you said. Help us to, to wrap things up from this text, you know, set the stage for where we're going in Luke and, and show us the good news of, of Jesus that we find in this text from Luke 9. I would be delighted to. You know, I, I, I've always told students that when you read the, the first uh, chapters of uh, the Galilean ministry, Luke 4.14, um, and uh, chapters uh, four, five, and six, Jesus is just, you know, it, 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 even seven and eight, he's peripatetic. He's just going here and there. He's teaching, he's performing miracles. He's got a lot of zip in his step. He's just covering everybody, loves him. Fame is going out. Crowds are against, you know, gathered around him. They're touching his garment. The, you know, the power to heal flows out of him. Then when you get to chapter nine, you can see that the action begins to slow down a little bit. You know, he's getting ready now. And, it's, and th this is a climactic chapter. There's a beautiful parallel in chapter 24 to chapter nine. It's amazing. Uh, very similar. So this is the end of the Galilean ministry and Luke 24 is the end of the gospel. And um, when Jesus turns his face to go to Jerusalem, I, I really do think that everything changes, even the way Luke writes. Jesus slows down, he's burdened by the sin he's been absorbing in his body and the sicknesses. I really think there's a great exchange that the power goes out of Jesus. Where do the sicknesses and sins go? Do they evaporate? Oh, they go into Jesus. This is where he bears our sins and carries our diseases all the way to the cross, which is the ultimate, final, kind of burden that is laid on him in its totality and brings darkness. And I, I think his, his way to Jerusalem takes way longer than it should. And and all the things that we had expectations for, where he is, what he's doing in, uh, in a time sequence, 
They're gone from the journey. It's like he's wandering around. He's this wandering prophet, you know, and is he ever going to get to Jerusalem? And I, I think you can almost see him just plodding along step by step as if he's burdened by the walk. He knows the impending future that's ahead of him. And, and, I, and I think this, this little section that we just looked at is what kind of turns us to understanding that it's, it's now going downhill onto a cross. And it, if you look at 951, I mean, it, it's just such an amazing verse, you know, that when the times were for him to be lifted up, he turns his face to go to Jerusalem. And that lifting up isn't just the ascension. That's his whole movement from heaven down into the earth and then back to heaven. That's the journey Jesus takes to redeem us. And it's, it's a beautiful kind of image of not just his ministry, but even now our church here. So it's, it's, you know, our burial into the earth like him and in our baptism, dying with him and then rising. With him. So, so that this, this is a moment and, you know, right after this is going to be in Samaria and it's going to be rejected. And then he's going to send out the 70 and everything changes here. So this, this is an extraordinary moment where there's a big shift in the gospel. And, and I think these verses prepare us for that great change. The Reverend Dr. Arthur Just is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he also serves as acting dean of the chapel. He also serves on the office at the Office of International Mission in Theological Education, and he's the author of the two-volume commentary on Luke in the Concordia Commentary series from CPH. Dr. Just, thank you so much for being our guest today. Such a delight to be with you, Pastor Apollos. It's a lovely hour together. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Southern Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 9 or any of the gospel, according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.